been coming for a little while, then you know we've been in the book of James, right? Going through it verse by verse and really just digging in and gleaning all we can from James's letter. His blueprint on what true and genuine faith should look like. And he says genuine faith in Jesus should inevitably produce good deeds within us. And James has been giving us practical advice on how we are to live this Christian life. So last week we finished up with chapter one. Did you guys enjoy last week? Was it transformative for anybody? All right, on a show of hands. I did this first service. On a show of hands, how many made an intentional effort to control what came out of their mouths this week? Hey, man. Hey, way more than first service. Come on. Good, because I do not want to preach that message again. I had enough conviction myself for the entire congregation, um, but it brought a little bit of awareness to me. So, hey, we're going to continue on James this morning, moving on to chapter two. So if you brought your Bible with you, would you turn with me to James chapter two? And we're going to start in verse one and continue to verse nine. So James ended chapter one with his exhortation for us as believers to show compassion and care for others and for us to commit ourselves from being polluted by the world. And he continues into chapter two with an example that the world carries, but what we as believers should not. You guys ready to take a look at it? All right, James 2, one through nine says this, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, you stand there or you sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my brothers and sisters, has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom He promised those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones dragging you into court? Are they not the ones blaspheming the noble name of Him whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth, Lord. And we just thank you for James's letter for us to be able to examine and test our faith as fellow believers. And Lord, I just pray this morning that you just have your will in this place, God, that we can be open and susceptible to your word and let it be transformative, not only in our hearts, but in our minds and our souls. And let it just transform our walk. Lord, I just pray that we can see people the way that you see people, that we can love others the way that you have loved them. And Lord, I just pray that you help us realize that this morning. Remove me from me, Father, and just use me as a vessel to be able to bring your word. Lord, I pray that we can just put our faith into action and be who you called us to be. We love you and we praise you. Amen. Amen. Have you ever judged a book by its cover? Or have you classified someone just by looking at them? Of course you haven't. You're Christians and you go to church, right? But the truth is all of us have been categorized, value, judged, or have been placed in a box by someone. And if we're to be real, we've probably done the same thing to others too. 
like the scraggler walking down the street with ratted old clothes and nasty hair. And we just assume he's a bum, right? And he's lazy. And we yell out the window, get a job! Maybe the reality is that he's lost his entire family to, a, to tragedy. Maybe it's the woman standing in line with all the tattoos up and down her body. And we automatically just assume they can't be a good person. And they're probably associated with some pretty rough people. What about the guy driving the brand new Denali AT4 down the road, huh? The Bible says don't covet, but I'm sorry, I love them rigs. And one of these days I'll have one. But we just look at him and think, oh, man, that guy's got it going on. He's got money and he's doing everything right. But maybe the truth is that he's so far in debt and he's trying to prove something else. Or if you're like me, it's all the teenagers walking in the mall who don't dress the way that make any sense to me whatsoever. I just automatically assume they're just a bunch of thugs, right? Come on, am I the only one? Or the scrawny little chump at the gym who you look at and think couldn't even lift a piece of paper, only to find out not only can he outlift you, but he can do the workout in half the time that it takes you, right? Like he just went from chump to champion in my book, but in my defense, he is half my age. But still... Too many of us are quick to draw conclusions about people solely based on a first impression. We like to categorize and define people based on how we view them externally. Like we'll make a preconceived opinion about somebody based on how they look and then we'll treat them accordingly. Did you see her hair? Like look at his clothes. They can't afford that. Well, I bet they're a hot mess. Can you imagine being married to them? Huh? Look at her. I guarantee those aren't real. <laughs> her eyelashes. Come on, y'all need G. I was talking about her eyelashes. Like, don't even act like y'all don't know. Like, I told first service, first service this, I said, I, I can honestly say in the 43 years I've been alive that I've never probably in my life ever said with my buddies or before I was married or whatever, dang. And if she only had six-inch caterpillars on her eyes, she'd be fine. Some of y'all, like, you know. They're fat. They're too skinny. They're too liberal. They're too conservative. They're too obsessive. He's always too angry. I'm not angry. I'm passionate. Each one of us in this room have external criteria that we filter our perceptions through when it comes to other people. Like we're looking at the outward appearance of others. And in 1 Samuel, the Lord uh, um, directs Samuel to go and appoint. Israel is wanting a king. So the Lord appoints Samuel to go and establish the king. And so Samuel walks up to Jesse. We find King David, who is later appointed king, right? But David has a lot of older brothers who are bigger and stronger and look better than he does. And when Samuel first walks up to define who is going to be their next king, he sees David's oldest brother standing there. And he's like, surely the Lord's anointed one is standing before me because he was tall, dark, and handsome, and he had all the right exterior qualities. But God commanded to Samuel and says, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That's right. And we as believers are to adopt the same mindset as Christ. When we accept Christ as our Savior, we're given a new nature. The old is gone and the new has come. And we are accepted by Christ without any partiality or judgment. And James is expressing in his letter to us that as believers, we should do the same. Let's look at James 1 through 4 real quick, just again, our main passage. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. 
Suppose a man walks into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing the fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? You guys remember before Pastor Mark left, he preached about James being a skeptic, right? That James was Jesus' half-brother. Do you guys remember that sermon? And James was a skeptic. And even in the beginning, he doubted Jesus' claim to be the Son of God because James knew Jesus in the flesh. He was looking at the external. But after Christ's crucifixion and then His resurrection, James now knows and believes that he truly is and was the Son of God. And I think it's important in this passage to point out how James defines Christ. He's, not, he's no longer looking at the external, but knowing internally that Jesus is ultimately glory. He is the radiance of God, the all-knowing, the healing, the creator, the comforter, the beginning, the end. He is reverent and all-powerful. And James is declaring to believers that if you truly make this claim and you believe that as well, then you will not show partiality or favoritism to anyone. Amen? We as believers are now in union with Christ. Like we have been infused with His Spirit. And we are to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus. Our evaluations of others, because of this new nature that we've received, must change. We are to view others in the same manner that Christ did. And we cannot base our evaluations on people, on external views, principles, or cultures. And we can't show favoritism, judgment, or partiality to anyone. Because God is no respecter of persons. And if Christ was, He probably wouldn't have chosen us, would He? Because we are unworthy. But yet, He loved and He chose to do so anyway. Even when we were so undeserving. Even when we were different than He was. And because being non-partial is so much a part of Jesus' character, those who are His children should strive to live in the same manner. Amen? Remember, James is giving us followers a blueprint on how to live and carry this faith we claim in the same manner that Jesus did. And throughout the book of James, he's continually instructing us to examine and test our faith. Because James wants to make certain that we love fairly. So my question to you today, church, is do we love equally? Is our love impartial or do we play favorites? Do we sacrifice for the poor and the wealthy equally? Do we care the same for the tatted or the untatted, the famous or the unknown, the black or the white, the rich or the poor, the important or the less important? Or are we impartial with love and compassion we express? Are we impartial with the love and the passion, the compassion we express? Or are we showing favoritism? And favoritism is the practice of giving unfair preferential treatment to one person or group at the expense of another. It's prejudice. It's discrimination. And James is declaring right here, he says, when you do that, it's a sin. James commands us in verse 1 that we as followers of Christ are not to show favoritism. We're not to discriminate, right? James was writing to, the, to a very prejudiced culture. They showed hatred towards certain classes, ethnicities, social status, economic status, and re religious beliefs. 
pretty much exactly what we're facing today, right? But Jesus came and when he gave his life up to break down the wall of separation. Because before Christ's crucifixion, there was this veil, there was this wall that separated us from God, right? And Jesus came to break down the dividing wall between that. So whenever he was crucified and then resurrected, the veil was torn. So now we have direct communication and a direct relationship with our creator, right? He broke down the dividing wall for that. And not only for us and God, but between Jew and Gentile, between man and woman, between black and white, between rich and poor, amen? He came to break down the barriers. He didn't care about the outward appearance of a person. He cared about their souls, them as a person, their hearts, and giving them hope and life. So do we care and are we more concerned about the outward appearance of a person? Do we judge with evil thoughts towards those who may not be exactly like us? Or are we concerned with their hearts and giving them the hope and the love of Christ? You might like to play cards in here. You guys want to play some poker? Listen, come on. I'm not standing up here advocating that we gamble and, and we play cards. Boaz wants to. We'll play a little side game later on. How about that? <clears throat> so don't misconstrue what I'm doing here. But like in poker and other card games, right, there's, there's you want the highest hand. Does that make sense? And so we try to attain the most valuable cards. So these cards are all assigned a value, and depending on which game you play, each card is given a value or worth. And we can use this illustration to see how we as people show favoritism, judgment, discrimination, or prejudice to others. So we look at this deck of cards, and so we just pretend this deck of cards is, just, it represents different people. You guys, you guys with me on that? Okay. So if we take this deck of cards... I'm just going to grab a few of these cards up here. Like, you know, that's probably enough. So we'll take this deck of cards. And in this deck of cards, oh man, look. So remember, this is an illustration. We got a king, right? Kings are good. We all want kings, right? Like this could probably represent the, the rich man that James was describing in his passage, like that you would show favor to, right? So, hey man, kings are good. I definitely, I definitely want a king. And we're going to get rid of them. Oh, here's a queen. And, you know, she's important, but... She's a woman, so she's not as valuable as the king is, I mean, according to the world standards, right? You know, so we'll, I mean, you know, so we'll, we're going to put her below the king. And here's a jack. This jack's only got one eye, so he's probably disabled. He's kind of a freak. I don't know why. It's kind of weird, but oh, good thing. There's another jack in the deck. So, hey, this jack looks more like us. He's actually got two eyes, so we're going to place him right there. Now we'll let the other jack kind of stay in there. Jokers, we don't even play with jokers. Like, we just re disregard them right off the bat. The moment that you buy a deck of cards, you just get the jokers, you just automatically toss them out, right? We don't even, I don't even know why they're in there. Aces, aces are good. Come on, everybody wants an ace in the hole, right? Winner, winner, chicken dinner. So we're going to put that, that goes, that goes right there in the most. And we got a two. Who played? Texas Hold'em, any twos any good in Texas Hold'em? No, nobody wants a two. So this probably represents the poor man that James was talking about, who we just literally say, you don't have any value. We're just going to throw you. You can, sit at the, you, know, you can sit on the floor at my feet unless I'm in charge of the game. And I say, you know what? Let's make deuces wild. You ever play poker with deuces wild? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Now you know what? Oh, wait. Now all of a sudden, 
what you didn't have value to me before, now you're actually worth something to me. So I'm gonna go ahead and classify you in here and put you in order because now, now you actually do have value. But you see, value has been assigned to each one of these cards. And what we do is we place them in order and we make preconceived notions and ideas about who's valuable, who's not, who's higher, who's lower, who's good, who's bad. And then we look at the numbers like this. And this is what society looks at, like this, in order of how we describe them, right? But you know what? God doesn't play games, amen? God don't look at them at face value. This is how God looks at them. Huh? This is how God looks at them like this, all equal, all the exact same. I mean, you can clap for that. Come on. You know why? Because all of us are made in his likeness and in his image. James exhorts that if you show favoritism, if you discriminate based on social, economic, ethnic, or for any other reason, if you love and care for only those who love you back, then your faith in Jesus is inconsistent. It's partial. It's contradictory. And it's a sin. So are we looking at people for what they can give us, what we can benefit from them, or what they can do for us? Or are we looking at others to see how we can love and serve them? And James says it's a sin, right? And so we don't only place value on people externally. I think we also place value or a ranking system on sin. Would you agree? Like we probably have an evaluation process that we go through on how we assess our sins. Like we know the big ones, right? Have no other gods before me. Don't commit murder. Don't commit adultery. Honor your father and mother, right? All those big ones. And I think that we classify them as the major no-nos. But then our smaller sins, those probably aren't as bad, right? So like if I were to do the same thing here, like had no other gods before me, don't commit murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. That's just the queen. I don't know. That's just what popped up in my head. I'm not being discriminatory. Come on. You know what? And maybe, maybe here's favoritism. It's not as bad as all the other sins. So we classify them like, this is really bad. These are the big no-nos right here. But yeah, me telling a lie or me committing a little bit less of a sin isn't the same in the comparison world as, as the big no-nos. And this is how we view it. But God views sin like this. A sin's a sin. And James is saying, if you're partial in your love and compassion to others, then you have sinned. And God does not classify sin. If you break even one law, then you've broken all of them. And we're going to hear more about that next week. And church, let me tell you this. Favoritism is no small or minor sin. And it's easy to think of prejudice as being a harmless act. And we probably wouldn't think of it as an insignificant sin, right? But James tells us that if we break any part of God's law, then we're violators of the whole law. So we don't get to pick and choose what laws we get to keep. And this command against partiality is just as important as all the other commands he gives us. God actually parallels this commands of adultery. He actually parallels this, parallels this sin to adultery and murder. Jesus even goes on to say that if you even harbor hatred or bitterness in your heart towards another person, you've actually committed murder, right? So Jesus actually even exceeds this. Every law of God matters. And every law of God must be obeyed. Amen? Amen? And James begins with a very simple yet powerful point. 
Having faith in Jesus and showing favoritism are not compatible. A person cannot have prejudice or discriminate on the basis of a person's status, appearance, or other external matters that are not relevant to our relationship with God. And church, we live in a world that's full of favoritism and discrimination already, right? We don't need any more. We face the issue of racism for hundreds of years. And this world is full of unfair judgment. So my plea is this, if there's any chance, if there's at least one community, one place where people in the world can all receive equal treatment, it must be in the church. Come on. It's got to be here where people feel like they're accepted, that we're not showing favoritism. We're not discriminating towards others. Let's continue on verses five through seven from James chapter two. He says, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith, to inherit the kingdom that he promised for those who love him? <clears throat> but you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich among you who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? Now, to be clear, James isn't using this illustration to say that wealthy people are bad, okay? It's not wrong to be wealthy. There's nothing wrong with being rich, and there's nothing wrong with being poor. But James is talking about the dishonest, mo the dishonest motives that cause believers to be partial towards those who are wealthy, stating that they have become the judge and their thoughts are evil. Because we believe if we show favoritism towards somebody who might be rich, then we might have something to gain ourselves, Right? But James is warning us that riches and wealth can become a hindrance or an obstacle when it comes to our faith and our obedience to God. Like money and wealth can, and I'm emphasizing can, have the ability to control us at times. And we can begin to rely on our economic status and be driven by money. And we may be tempted to use our economic resources to get us out of situations and seasons in our lives and lessen our reliance on God in those times. And James is stating that the poor and the less fortunate are blessed in their faith because their reliance is solely on God alone. They can only rely and can only have God's faith in that, in His provision. So therefore, their faith tends to be a little bit more genuine. And I read one commentary that quoted F.B. Meyer, and this is what it said. He said, The rich man may trust Him, referring to Christ, but the poor man must. The poor man has no fortress in which to hide except the two strong arms of God. In 2 Corinthians 8, 8 through 9, says, I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that, through he was, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And Christ became poor by releasing his rights as God and becoming human like us. And in doing this, we then become rich in our faith. We receive a salvation and the gift of eternal life. And it's not the wealth and the riches of this world that we're to seek, but a rich and genuine faith in him. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And James states in our passage, isn't it the rich who oppress and exploit you? Aren't they the very ones blaspheming, the very one that you have declared your savior? 
And he's referring to the ones who were falsely charging and attacking their faith. They were actually slandering the name of Christ. And they were using their positions and their economic influence for selfish gain. Some, were even, some of you even used their power to persecute and tyrannize the poor and the ones who believed in Jesus. And what James is saying, he said, when you show favoritism to them because of what they can do, because of their status, what they possess, but you don't show favoritism to the poor or the less fortunate, then you're actually despising the very ones that God has chosen. Most of you have heard of Lance Armstrong, right? Pretty, pretty iconic, famous athlete, seven-time Tour de France winner, um, but was stripped of his titles because he was caught using performance-enhancing drugs at uh, one time. And I'm sure that Lance is a, is a stand-up and amazing guy. I know that he's been very involved in charitable work. And most of you guys know Lance from his Live Strong bracelet campaign, his yellow bracelets that went out, and everybody was wearing those at one time. And I think he's a great guy, does, does amazing things. Um, but what you might not know about Lance Armstrong is that he is a proclaimed atheist and an agnostic. So in today's terms, what James is literally saying is, and I'm just using Lance for an example. Um, if Lance Armstrong walked into your church and because of his status, his celebrity image, his social status, that you showed excessive favor to him because he's an icon, but you didn't show the same favor and courtesy who someone, of someone else who doesn't possess the same attributes, then you're committing a sin. And he even goes as far as saying that these people that you're showing favor to are actually denying and blaspheming the name of Christ. Now, I admit, we would probably all be a little starstruck if Lance Armstrong walked into our church, right? And we would, but you know what we would do? We would love him and we would accept him and we would invite him in in hopes that he could sit here in the message and have a revelation and come to know Christ as his Lord and Savior too, right? Isn't that the hope? But we're not to show special attention and treatment to certain individuals, classes, races, or demographic of people, and then despise others because they don't fit our standard or our, our criteria. Who we are according to the world's standards has no relevance at the foot of the cross. Amen? We're all equal and made in the image and the likeness of God. And Jesus exemplified this while he lived on this earth as humans just like us. And we're called to do the exact same. <clears throat> so let's dive into our main passage. I want to read the last two verses that I have for you today. James, 8, or James 2, 8 through 9 says, If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. And in Matthew 22, Jesus is confronted by the, both the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And both sets of religious rulers are questioning Jesus and his beliefs. And they're, they're, in, and they're giving instructions to all the other Pharisees and all the other religious leaders. And they're trying to trap Jesus into saying something that is against their law so that they can persecute him and crucify him. And a Pharisee who happened to be a lawyer, he tested Jesus with this question. So this is Matthew 22, 36 through 39. And it says, Teacher... Which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said, he being Jesus, to him, You shall love the Lord God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Partiality, prejudice, and favoritism are essentially self-serving and self-centered. Jesus, on the other hand, is essentially self-giving, right? And he's centered on the needs of others. 
So this law that, is, that governed his life is what James is, what his, James is talking about, what he's referring to. This is what Jesus' brother is referring to when he says the royal law. It's love your neighbor as yourself. So the royal law is honoring Jesus being our king. And the poor are just as much as our neighbor as the rich man may be, right? We're commanded, we're commanded and not recommended to show love and mercy to all and not for our selfish gain, church, but because Jesus did and he commanded us to and he transforms and renews our minds in order so that we can do that, so that we can love the way that he loved. Amen? Amen. John 15, 12 says, my command is this. This is Jesus talking. He says, love each other as I have loved you. Sam, do you mind to come up and play some keys? I read this statement this week. I want to read it to you. I thought it was pretty good. It says, Why is not living partially so important to the Lord? Because when you live, when you practice partiality, you misrepresent Christ to people. When you live partially, you live contrary to salvation by grace. When you behave partially, you're a terrible witness since you give people the impression that God himself sides with only those who have power, position, and wealth. And when you behave partially, you elevate the world's assessment of people and you completely ignore God's view of people revealed in his word. And so James is teaching us believers, us Christians in chapter two, to view partiality as a serious sin. James doesn't want partiality, prejudice, and bigotry at any level to be tolerated or seen as a lesser sin. James is looking beyond our actions into our attitudes. And you know what? We might not have committed murder, which is an action, but we may have hatred for a brother or a sister or have a judgmental attitude towards certain other people that aren't like us. And James is declaring that's breaking the royal law of love and the reason that Jesus came to this earth and gave his life up. So church, we got to check our motives. Are we sacrificial towards others? Are we selective towards others? Or are we loving to all, merciful to all, gracious to all, or are we just favoring a few? Do we actually elevate our treatment of others as pleasing to Christ or not? Or do we see our treatment of others as no big deal? And the Lord is telling us right now that being partial is a serious sin. And the only way that we'll change is to see our relationships and our interactions with others as something that's very vital and important to God. And at the core of Jesus' ministry was love. Love for the poor. Love for those rejected by society. Love for the sick. Love for the black. Love for the white. Love for the woman. Love for the man. Love for the important. Love for the less important. He didn't come for himself. He came for them. He came for us. And when I look back, I look and see who Jesus spent the majority of his time with. And when we think about the apostles, we recall, you know what? They didn't have stature and clout and they weren't rich. You know what they were? Just ordinary people like us, right? And Jesus chose them. 
And when we think of the multitudes that Jesus spoke to and the people that he ministered to throughout his time here on this earth, much of it was time or tax collectors and sinners and people that the religious rulers actually condemned him for doing because they wouldn't have any association with them. Jesus didn't pe treat people differently because of their education, because of their wealth, because of their reputation, because of their status, because of how much weight they could lift or what kind of vehicle they drove. Jesus dealt with people for who they were as a person. James isn't saying you can't have friends or you can't have a core group of people around you in your life, so don't misrepresent that. Jesus ministered to people, but you know what? He had 12 people around him, 12 of his core people. And then within that 12, he had three who he was closest to. So we're going to have people in our lives that are close to us, that we consider our close group. And we're going to be drawn to the ones who are like us, who like to share the same interests and share the same things and like the same things that we like, right? But what James is saying is that we're not to treat those that aren't like us any differently. We can't show favor to those who are like us and not show favor and care and compassion and love to those who aren't. In church, just because they don't act like us, dress like us, or like the same things that we like, doesn't mean they love Christ any less. So maybe you were raised in a prejudiced house. Maybe you were hurt by another race or a gender or a certain demographic of people. Maybe you were the popular one and you were the jock in the school who disregarded the nerds, or maybe you were the nerds who couldn't stand the jocks. You might've been the outcast who, was, who secluded themselves because they didn't look like anybody else and they dressed differently than everybody else. Maybe you were the rich one. Maybe you were the poor one. Maybe you were the white one. Maybe you were the black one. Maybe it was the way you were raised or the unfortunate circumstances of this world that has given you a false and an inaccurate perception of certain people. Regardless today, call it what it is. This is what James calls it. He says, it's sinful rebellion to the Lord that you love if you show favoritism to certain people. So stop hiding behind, hey, that's just how I was raised or thinking, you know what, that's just the way I am or they hurt me so I'm allowed to act and feel this way or that it's no big deal. Because what James is saying is partiality and faith in Jesus Christ don't mix. Because Christ came for all to love and surrender his life so that all would come to know him. And there's no room for partiality at the foot of the cross. Christ called us the way we were, the way we are, evil, sinful, fallen, hateful, lustful, you name it. And yet he still chose to, and he still chooses to accept us impartially by his grace. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's a gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. We're not to view ourselves as better than anybody else. And we're called to be impartial to all those we encounter. What Ephesians is saying is like, listen, this isn't by your works. This isn't something that you've done. 
This is a free gift of God. So it's, only, it's, it's for you and it's for you and it's for you and it's for them and it's for them and it's for them and it's for all. I did this because you can't boast about that. I'm giving you something for free. So we're not to claim a place of honor as if we're better than other people because for all the good that we have is from above. Amen? Non-believers have no ability to love biblically, let alone impartially. But you and I as believers cannot live the Christian life and you and I cannot live impartially without judgment, without favoritism, unless it's Christ living impartially through us and by his spirit. Amen? We gotta be filled with the spirit of Christ in order to do this. And being filled means to become an overwhelming presence. Man, I want to be an overwhelming presence. We should be so overwhelmed with Christ's love and his spirit that it pours out to every single person that we come in contact with. Do you want to be that kind of vessel, church? When we're filled with his spirit, we're controlled by his spirit. No longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We begin to live and love in the same manner that Jesus did. And our minds become saturated with his word. And we begin to seek a life that's pleasing to God in everything we do, in every action we perform, in every word that comes out of our mouths. And we don't fill ourselves. We rely and we ask that Christ pours his spirit within us. To live impartially without favoritism or judgment or prejudice, we must depend on Jesus and we must walk according to his word. The only way to love impartially is to, be, is to personally know and be transformed by the only God who is impartial. Because you know what? The Lord saves us impartially and it doesn't matter our race, our background, our sinfulness, our status, our status or our class because our God is merciful, our God is just, our God is gracious, and our God is so loving that he sent his son to die in our place. And when we surrender to him by faith, we're born again, right? We're forgiven and we're transformed and we're made new. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, the old is gone and the new has come. And when we do this and we allow Christ to work within us, then we become so full of love, his love, that we begin to see and view everybody the way that he does. And it's only then we can start loving the exact same way that Jesus loved. But this only happens when we surrender to him. When we're ready to exchange all that we are and all that we have been for all that he is. Amen? And so maybe you're in here today and you don't have a relationship with Christ. I want to give you that opportunity. If you desire hope that's eternal and everlasting, the Bible says that there's only one way. There's only one way to the Father, and that's through the Son, and that all who profess the name of Jesus Christ and declare that He is the Lord will be saved. And then your name is forever written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Amen? And I said this last week, so for those of you that weren't here, I stood up here and I said, you know what, we've, we've, we've have a misconception, just like we have a misconception or a preconceived um, expectation of people, I think we've done the same thing with this altar. Like this isn't an altar of shame. 
It's not an altar for playing cards either, but, but this isn't an altar of shame, right? And I know we do this to protect people. And I've had conversations with multiple pastors before in leadership about, hey, this is the kind of way we do this because we want to honor people. We don't want to embarrass them. But listen, when you make that declaration that you're making Christ the Lord of your life, that's something to celebrate, church. Come on. That's not something that's embarrassing that we should bow our heads and close our eyes and we can say, oh, I see your hand back there. And then they walk out the door. We never, ever have a relationship with them ever again. That's something that we should stand up in boldness and in confidence and be filled by His Spirit saying, you know what? I want to be changed. I don't want to love people the way that I've been loving them. I want to love them the way Jesus loves them. And I'm ready to make that declaration today. And I want my eternity ever changed. Amen? And so that's something that we should stand up in boldness and encourage and gather around people and pray over them so that they know that they have a community around them that says, man, I'm cheering for you. I love that. It's something to celebrate, church. It's exciting. It's not embarrassing or condemning. So if that's you today, I want, do you have the boldness to stand up? I did this in first service and there wasn't any. And my prayer is, you know what? We're gonna continue to do this. Because even if there's one, amen, all of heaven's rejoicing and this entire church is rejoicing. So if there's one, I would just ask that you just stand up today. I'm not gonna embarrass you, but I do want to acknowledge the fact that your life will be forever changed because of Jesus. Is there one? And there may not be, and that's fine. But maybe you're in here today and you've realized, you know what, I've been a little bit prejudiced in my life. And I think, you know what, honestly, I'd say everybody in here has shown favoritism in one facet or another at some point. Maybe it's race or social status or whatever. Maybe it's just whenever we're walking down the aisle of Walmart, we look at somebody and we just, St. James is saying, man, that's sin. Church, that's discrimination. So maybe you're here today and that's you. You're like, man, I don't want to look at people the way that I've been looking at people. I want to look at people the way that Jesus looks at people for who they are because all of us have been made in the likeness and created in the image of God. Maybe you're in here today and you've been the victim of race or discrimination or prejudice or a social class or something has happened to you. Somebody has attacked you and you've been the victim of that today. Maybe you're harboring resentment and bitterness inside you. That's a sin too, church. We need to release that. Because you know what? We can't love others and see others the way that Christ does if we're harboring resentment towards somebody else that's hurt us in the past. This is not a place of shame. This is a place of conviction though, I will say that. It's not to condemn anybody, but it is a place of conviction where we can come and say, God, you know what? I no longer choose to be what I've been. Lord, I'm surrendering this to you. And this isn't, this isn't conviction or this isn't con condemnation, but this is conviction, like pouring your life out to the Holy Spirit saying, God, I wanna be renewed. I wanna be restored. I wanna be different. I wanna be transformed so that I think like you, that I act like you, that I talk like you, that I love like you. Help me to see people the way that you see them. Help me to love them the way that you love them, Jesus. And I think that's every single one of us in this church. If that's you this morning, I, want you, I, want you, I just want to invite you to come forward. Like we're making a declaration this morning that we don't longer want to walk and view people the way that we've been viewing people. And you don't have to come to this altar to do that. You can do that in your seats. I want to change the external way that we view people and the way, the external way that we view this church and that we view this altar and that we view what it means to come before our Father and lay out our requests. Amen.
That's what it is this morning. So if that's you, Sam's gonna continue to play. I just ask that you take a moment of reflection. If you need to surrender that, that bitterness and, that, and that, that harboring of what's been done to you inside, you can do that right here. Or if you've been looking at people the way that you shouldn't be looking at people, if you realize today, you know what, I've been a little bit, I've been a little bit prejudiced. I've been a little bit discriminatory. Look, I had to have conviction in my heart when I was preparing this message. It was the exact same way for me. I think all of us at some point have faced that in our lives. I just want to give this opportunity. We're just going to take a few minutes. If you want to come, we got people that will pray with you. If you want to pray in your seat, um, that is more than fine too. But let's just take a few minutes just to reflect on that, all right?